Welcome back to Your 1230, the only podcast where our guests tell their story with the help of 12 questions in just 30 minutes. I'm your host, Mike Salitro, and today we are very excited to be joined by David Dipong. David is the owner of Dipong Real Estate and the go-to resource for real estate needs in Southern California, from LA to Orange County. Working with Compass Real Estate Brokerage, he specializes in residential home and multifamily purchases, sales, and investments. David works every day to help his clients achieve a higher level of real estate education, own their first, second, or third property, and learn to leverage their real estate over the long term to build multi-generational wealth. David, welcome. We are really excited to be speaking with you. Thanks, Mike. Happy to be here. Of course, of course. Thank you for saying that. And your bio mentions the uh, Los Angeles to Orange County market. That is uh, one that is well known uh, both here in the United States and around the world. Uh, is that where you grew up? No, I actually grew up in Cleveland, which is what, when I moved out here about 15 years ago, gave me a true appreciation of the West Coast and the weather and what it's like to have it versus what it's like to not have it. It's a good answer. So was it the weather that brought you out there? How, what what was the calling? How did you uh, find your way to LA? My friends were coming out here anyway. They wanted to, uh, you know, they were one of the cliches. They were looking to be in a famous band. Okay. And I was like, all right, well, I'll just go out there anyway, because it seems a lot more interesting than here. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I fell in love with it. I was a private chef for a couple of years, and then I switched into real estate when I saw how much potential it had to not only be a great career, uh, be something I'm good at, because I'm very analytical by nature, but also something you can leverage to build a life that you actually want as opposed to a life where you're working constantly. Okay. A lot of follow-ups there. First, I want to start with the private chef part. Was, was this something that you were trained in? Was this just a job for you? Was, was, what was, what was that to you when you were doing it? Yes, I was a professionally trained chef and I worked in a few restaurants around LA. I worked in France and up in Bel Air with certain families. At a certain point though, working six days a week, 16 hours a day got old. Okay. I could see that. And I, I have the opportunity to talk to a lot of amazing folks, a good number which in the real estate business. Not many talk about moving into real estate, at least starting a career, because it is uh, less demand on them hours-wise, work-wise. So that, that's interesting that you bring that up. Uh, how did you get started? Or you mentioned that it was an appealing career. Do you remember either who brought you in or what your first transaction looked like? Well, my job was already dealing with a lot of high net worth people on a day-to-day -day basis that were looking to keep a budget, looking to achieve a goal. And being a chef naturally taught me how to work hard harder, I'd say, than most other people. So maybe yeah. when I say it's less hard or when I say it's less work, it's just a point of reference for me. Like, it's definitely easier for me to learn, do a great job, repeatedly come out for my clients and still not have to work 16 hours a day. So in proportion, it's easier. It, you know, if it's your only career, you've got nothing to reference. So maybe you think it's hard, but as long as you know what you're talking about and you stay up to date on the information, you keep working in the industry, 
you should naturally get better. <laughs> That's all good points. I won't argue any of those. Uh, you mentioned doing a great job for your clients. Multiple years in, doing well. What does that look like now? Or what do your clients uh, expect as far as a great job from you when they come to work with you? They expect to not have to stress. They expect that you're going to handle or have the answers for 90% of the things that happen throughout their escrow, the way to find the right property, the way to refine the search into a home that's not only going to meet your needs now, but is going to have a greatest, the greatest chance of becoming a great investment to be able to use on your next home. Because you're not only buying something that you have, to, you're going to live in now. Most people don't start out buying their forever home or the one they're going to keep for 30 years. Most people have to start by buying a starter home. And if you buy the right starter home, you'll get to the goal much more quickly. So uh, my clients expect me to analyze the neighborhoods. They expect me to tell them one, how to get the property, how to get it done in a competitive market. And they expect a reason why they should be looking at these neighborhoods as opposed to all the other neighborhoods in existence in these two very large, very expensive counties. So that's that, that's a great description. And that is something that I think a lot of clients are looking for, but not always the end result or not, not something that they end up with. So you mentioned if you buy the first property properly, you set yourself up down the line to have the, to, to leverage the money that you're investing to further investments and to kind of treat that property as your initial investment. How have you, with large markets, how have you been able to kind of hone those skills going forward to know this neighborhood for this type of buyer, or this will be a good investment if you're looking for this? How, is, how have you been able to kind of uh, cultivate those skills? The important thing to know about any large metropolitan area like Los Angeles, Atlanta, Austin, there's always a, a part of the city that they're working on. For example, Brentwood and Culver City weren't historically great 20 years ago, but about 10 years ago, they were the most popular places to move to. And Inglewood hasn't historically been considered the nicest city. However, about 10 years ago, a little bit longer, plans for new stadiums, plans for new football stadium, new business, all these new developments started coming in. And when a city over a long period of time establishes a budget and says, we're going to invest money into this area over the next 15 years, there's no way that that neighborhood cannot go up in value. What changes are the client's goals, whether they are in a position where they would be able to live there and still commute to the job, whether they consider the area safe enough for themselves and their current quality of living, and how much money they have to spend out of pocket. So there's always gonna be a neighborhood that's the best investment, the most aggressive investment for your money, the one that's gonna generate the most money for the next property. And there's always gonna be a neighborhood where they would like to be right now. And my job is to get them the top three criteria. My job is to get them as close as possible to their ideal while still not putting them in a neighborhood that they would hate to be in for the next 10 years if they had to be, but also put them in one that's actually going to grow more than the average or because the average barely keeps up with inflation. Okay, so that's that. That's helpful as far as 
somebody who has the foresight to know that I'm gonna be in this house for 10 years or this is on the, in the the city's priority list as far as their capital improvements and then where their budget is going to be directed. If someone is changing kind of markets like you did, changing from the Midwest to the West Coast, outside of finding someone in, like an ex, like yourself, like an expert in the market, what should they know before moving to a new city? If they've got a new job or they're moving for a girlfriend, let's say, what kind of things are important to know before making that jump, especially if looking at L.A. or, or Orange County? That's a great question. And honestly, I'll be honest, the whether you want to live there or not, it really doesn't matter. The same things that equal the highest growth and the best neighborhoods are always the same. It's always places that the city's spending money. It's always places with development and commercial and re real estate and transportation. It's always the school systems with the best schools. There's certain things you can do to say like, okay, I don't want to live in this neighborhood or I might not want to live in this neighborhood past two, three years. But if I keep this property and I go short term, I have to move somewhere else. This will still be a good investment. My mantra is never sell because unless you absolutely have to, there's no city that I'm going to direct you in to buy something in LA or Orange County that's not going to go up in value long term. And over the 10 year period, it's hard to beat real estate in either one of these counties. But under the 10 year period, if you're forced to make a decision too quickly or you're forced to do something at a poor time, that's when you lose. So I would say make sure that while you're living there for a few years, do what you can to improve the value, do what you can to add sweat equity, do what you can to figure out with the real estate professional you're working with how you can make that property break even until it's a great time to sell it or you know leverage the equity from it to buy something in your new area now suddenly instead of worrying about the long term you know that having this is a good idea no matter what and you can make little adjustments to the plan based on how your life goes i love your long-term kind of vision and approach with real estate especially as you reference never sell because uh, time in the market is impossible. And when you have, in general, an appreciating asset like residential real estate, unless you are forced to sell for XYZ reasons, if you can hold on to it, you can count on some sort of uh, incremental increase. Uh, you mentioned the sweat equity piece. And I thought that was interesting to kind of work with your real estate professional, because I think that's where a lot of real estate professionals might lose sight of their clients or vice versa. Are you in contact with someone who bought a house from you two, five, seven years ago to kind of guide them where they should be investing that money, that sweat equity, or how do you do that to provide value after the closing table? I regularly follow up a few times a year with recommendations. I give my clients AI tools and home evaluation software, things that they can keep track of, which I go in and I'll update the CMA based on the current market. And honestly, this year I've said, hey guys, not probably not going to be a great year to sell unless there's something you actually want to buy. Interest rates are higher, prices are slowly eking up because we just don't have enough home supply. And we just won't have enough home supply, <laughs> which is it. one, on the one hand, it protects you. There's no real reason for you to sell. And on the other hand, when rates start to come down, you will be three, four years more of equity. You will have that much more equity and we'll be able to talk about your next moves. 
So if you're never planning to sell and you've suddenly found yourself with $400,000 that you didn't put in the home, in addition to the 10, 20% you put down in the beginning and all of the money that you've paid in monthly, now you can say, well, well, if I want to buy another home, that $400,000 that came out of my first home, my million dollar home, my $700,000 home, now that's 20% down on a $2 million home or a $1.6 million home if you wanted to go 25%. So now there's a reason to use that money. So long story short, I keep them up to date on the rough values, the amount of equity they have, and when I see is a good time to make those switches. And you know what would be the best time to buy something without prices going up too fast and interest rates coming down too fast because of the competition we're going to see at that time. And then I let them make the decision that's best for them, whether they're ready to take that next step or whether they need a little bit more time. For, for anybody who's listening to this, and I just want to stress the point that if you're in a service business, specifically real estate here, and you can remain in contact with prior clients and provide them something specifically valuable to them in their current situation, it has exponential value because many times I'll I'll get something in the mail from a real estate agent I've worked with, met a, a refrigerator magnet, for example. I don't need that. I don't want that. And it's like, you have no idea. Uh, how little value this is to me. But when you what you're doing there is you're staying top of mind, you're providing something that is actually helpful and that is something they're going to use and they're going to associate, hey, David gave me this this tool, this service, gave me this evaluation that I can use today and he's thinking of me and it's something that I actually need. So I mean that that I I'm sure there'll be others, but that is one of the that's the takeaway from from this conversation that know what your clients want and then provide it to them. Don't just assume everybody wants a refrigerator magnet. So I love that. I'm changing gears for a moment. Do you have a, a Los Angeles story that you tell friends or family back home or, you know, for somebody who's never been out there, it's like, what's the craziest or what, what story epitomizes what it's like to sell real estate in Los Angeles? <laughs> I mean, the simple fact of the matter is Los Angeles changes your expectations or it changes your perspective on what money is because i guarantee you everyone in the los angeles area whether they're buying at five hundred thousand or they're buying at 20 million are still spending most of their money now if you're spending all of your money at five hundred thousand, it feels the same as if you were spending all of your money at 20 million the all of your money amount is different, but you're still you're still spending all of it. And it's important to note that I look at the reason I look at this, the data when I'm breaking things down for clients and I say, well, here's what you could do. Here's what's likely going to happen here is because it's a very emotional experience to spend all of your money. So yes, it's it good to have facts to take out as much of the emotion as possible to say, like, hey, here are the facts. Here's how much you're going to spend. Here's how much you'll have left. Here's probably how how long you're going to keep it. Here's how much you know, you're know you going to spend. Here's what I would recommend always keeping, never selling. And then letting them take it and figure it out. Letting them tell me how much emotional breath they, they have. But you know, I've seen properties sell 5 million cash and I've helped people get down payments down payment assistance so that they could buy a home with less than 1% down. It, to put it into perspective, 
everyone's story is different, but it doesn't mean their home or their investment means any less to them. Does that make sense? That's well said. And uh, I wrote down the spending most of your money because you're right on that part that your price point is determined by your, your income, your assets, what you can. You generally people spend at the top of what they can afford. And the kind of second part to that, that uh, is that you are going to compromise on something. Even if you are buying that $20 million house, it probably has something that either it's not an exact location, doesn't have that six bedroom you were hoping for. You know, there's some, no matter what your price point is, you're going to end up compromising on something. So uh, I like the way that you kind of tie in that the amount of money spent does not change the the emotional attachment to the property. For They are spending a large amount, if not the uh, vast majority of what they have on this property. So that's it's a good way to kind of think about it. Uh, talk to us about your your real estate team. Is Are you a, a one-man show? What does your operation look like? Yeah, so right now I'm a one-man show. When I first got into the business, I worked, I basically chose the apprentice style of learning. I worked for somebody who did what I wanted to do at the level that I wanted to do it and showed that he would because of his consistent production. So I said, I'm not going to spend 10 years figuring this out myself. I'm going to spend two years working incredibly hard and learning everything I need to do and everything I need to know. And then for the years after that, as soon as the more of my clients started coming from me, and were maintained by me, I switched to working on my own because at this point I wanted to grow my business, my brand. And when you work under somebody else, your name isn't the one that they hear. Your name isn't the one on the door. So as soon as I knew that I had the skills to take care of my clients and the, the wherewithal to keep expanding my knowledge, to know that I needed to keep reading new books, I needed to keep looking at the market every day, I needed to keep up with current economic news, I was ready to go on my own. And I've been doing that for the last few years. Do you remember how you found your, uh, we'll call him your mentor, the, the, for the real estate professional you apprenticed for? Yes. Uh, Google was very helpful for this. <laughs> What you'll notice when you work with a lot of different, or even if you worked with a few different agents, um, the brokerage, the company almost doesn't matter. Yes, it's good to have some good tools. Yes, it's good to have some flashy marketing, this and that. But just like any industry, there are those that are going to excel because their standard of excellence, their standard of service is just higher. And there are those that are going to coast. So I searched the top brokerages near me. I searched how much business they were doing. I searched what their business models were. And then I interviewed with half a dozen of them. And from there, I picked the one that meshed with my goals the most. So it was a very systematic approach where the only ending could be that I work with somebody that's going to help me achieve my goals. So uh, your approach is methodical, it's strategic, and your work, work ethic, even though you haven't said it, I'll, I'll put it out there, is very evident in pretty much everything you've done. And it's it manifests itself in the product that you deliver to your or the service you deliver to your clients and has led to a successful career and a trajectory that is going to continue to grow. Uh, changing gears yet again, uh, 
Do you did did you have a go to or a signature dish that you were known for as a chef? <laughs> oh man, I gotta tell you, my my lasagna was very good. I I, I bust that thing out at some d- different events, parties, things like that. It was like thirty layers. It took all day. There were. I also had a lot of requests for things like fresh baguettes, cinnamon rolls, you know, bread that really smells up the house. Um, But one of my favorite things was always a Mediterranean spread or like fajitas, something where you could make 19 different dishes and they all go together and they all go in the same tortilla or the same pita bread and you just, (laughs) you just get after it. Do you still cook today or what, what is that piece of your life look like now? Well, that piece of my life is simply whenever we have guests over or my wife and I like to have dinner together, cook, we'll have our meals and snacks throughout the week. But every weekend we'll go to the farmer's market and we'll grab some fresh ingredients and then we'll go home and we'll make a dish or she'll pick something from a cookbook, you know, something that looked interesting to her that we haven't done before. And then we'll come home and we'll figure it out. So it's much more of a pleasure than a career at this point, because I still like it. And it's in no way less useful than it was when I first learned. So I can't speak officially, but you may be talking to one of, if not the absolute worst cooks in the world, It's pretty close. So I am, you know, I can talk real estate with you all night, but when it comes talking about <laughs> the skills uh, in the kitchen, I, I am in complete awe and have immense respect. Um, is there any parallels besides the hard work that you can draw? Because you mentioned them being analytical and I, I don't know many chefs, but I would never necessarily think of them as analytical. Is there anything that you can draw besides the work ethic that my training as a chef really prepared me. Uh, I'm going to stop because I'm going to answer my own question, but anything that prepared you for your real estate career? Yeah. And that's a, I mean, that's a really great question. That's the side of the chef that you never see. There is for every chef that is planning a menu or has a tattooed sleeve or you see, and you think, Oh, this person's an artist. This person's, you know, exploring their career, their culinary journey. There's another person who's in the back doing inventory. There's another person making sure the budget works for the day. There's a a person who's equally contributing to the menu and working on the food, but his job is to make sure the business stays open and not that, and that you just don't spend all of your money and go out like a flash in the pan because honestly, most restaurants fail in the first two years and then not many survive in the next couple. So you have to have both sides, usually restaurants have a few different chefs, a chef de cuisine and some sous chefs. And one of those people is a more analytical person who's really trying to get things done. And the other one is in is in more shaping the concepts of the restaurant and the food that you serve. Okay, good answer. Uh, we talked about the time at the farmer's market in the kitchen is there anything that you do now that you categorize as relaxing or a way to step away from work either on the weekends or or when you're not working yeah absolutely so besides I, i like to i like to champion having a life by design 
So my career is one leg and I enjoy it most of the time, but nobody enjoys working all the time. And my relationship, my love life, my wife, she's one section of it. And so when I, you know, although I love spending time with her and I love spending, I love working, I love helping people. I have a third leg of volunteering with dogs, adoptions, shelters, things like that. I adopted a pit bull, you know, five years ago. She's the sweetest dog I've ever owned. She's so happy. Um, and so I look at the way of counterbalancing my life. Like if I'm at work and I enjoy it most of the time, great. When I come home, I really enjoy being with my wife and my dog. And then when I need a little bit of extra emotional support, or decompression time. I'll volunteer with dogs and I'll help them because they are nothing but grateful constantly. They're never trying to figure out who, what's happening or what are you trying to do to them. They're just grateful for the fact that you're there. And beyond that, just the normal stuff. Like I make sure in my morning routine every day that I get my exercise and I make sure I eat in a way that I wake up every day feeling great and not feeling hungover. <laughs> so it's kind of a counterbalance of five different sections of my life, but those are the things I use. And when I need less of one, I take one more of another. I wrote down life by design and counterbalance because I think that that's a really brilliant, simplistic way to think about it, that you're thoughtful on the things that you want to spend time uh, well, where you want to put your energy, who you who you're spending them with, and to know which kind of levers to pull when you need it. I think that's that's it's really great because you're right that you might love what you do, but you can't do it all the time. And kind of same with everything else in, in the in the things you describe there. Um, so I I jump around all the time, which I've done here, uh, but kind of wrapping up as we're already on time. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that I probably should have? Yeah, I would. I know all the talk about real estate is very hard for some people in our society talking about money and building wealth and buying a home all these really important milestones isn't hasn't always been the easiest it's always it depends on your family it depends on how comfortable you were growing up talking about it what your how your parents talked about it so although not everybody starts the same place either in their investing journey or their physical health journey or any other journey that they're going to go on over the hundred years that they're here. Success isn't complicated. It's the logical conclusion of simple steps every day. Like, and that's kind of what I want to leave everybody with. It doesn't matter if you save, you know, a hundred dollars a month for a thing that you want, like a home. It doesn't matter if you have to apply to down payment assistance programs that take two years to qualify. It doesn't matter if you have to start exercising 10 minutes a day, because that's where you are. The logical conclusion of doing that for six months or six years is just you hitting your goal. The only thing separating you is time. So just do the simple steps, do the easy things, do the, take the time and you will get there. That's excellent advice. Uh, David, where can our listeners find you or connect with you if they want to uh, work with you or, or find out more? So I have a website, www.dipong real estate. Um, it's got all of my email, 
phone number, social media accounts. You can sign up for my monthly newsletter if you want to keep track of real estate and local events in my area. Or if you just want to send me a message and say, hey, here's my area. Like, how would you get started in my area? And I can sit down with you and I can get back to your message. We can schedule some time on the phone and just say, hey, here's what I would do. And start by giving you some value, some food to chew on. And then when you're ready for more, they can come back to me. So you can find all of my information there and you can start it at whatever seriousness or obligation that you feel comfortable starting at. Excellent. So we will post all that in the show notes. Dave, this has been a blast. Thank you so much for joining us and uh, I do look forward to doing it again. Thanks for having me, Mike. I'm always happy to chat about real estate and life. 